Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Vivian Tran. She's at Latrobe University. She's a graduate researcher in physiology, anatomy, and microbiology. I'm going to talk about what's called perivascular adipose tissue, which is a fat tissue surrounding blood vessels. So, Vivian, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I'm excited yeah, well, to share my research. Good, yeah. Well, let's let's chew the fat, as they say, and tell me about your research. What's it about? So, as you said before, I'm a PhD student at La Trobe University, and my lab group is a part of the Center of Cardiovascular Research. But I specifically work on metabolic syndrome. So, metabolic syndrome really is an umbrella term used to describe a cluster of metabolic conditions, which include obesity, type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and abnormal lipid levels. So really, you're defined as having metabolic syndrome when you have three out of the four of these comorbidities. And what's interesting to us is that each of these metabolic conditions can lead to an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. But there's one thing that not many people have really thought about, and that's if what happens when one person has all of these metabolic conditions or three of the four, because more often than not, one of these comorbidities don't occur alone. For example, if you're obese, you're likely to also have type 2 diabetes and abnormal lipid levels. So that's really what I'm also exploring in my project, as well as sex differences in metabolic syndrome. And what's really interesting about it is that usually when we know that more females are diagnosed with metabolic syndrome, but somehow males die from cardiovascular disease, so one of the big questions that we are asking ourselves is what in particular is protecting the females? And the avenue that we've gone down is the adipose tissue fat route, where we want to explore potentially how maybe distribution of fat or like where our fat sits is affecting our health. And particularly, I'm looking at perivascular adipose tissue. So, okay. Is there a lot of perivascular adipose tissue? I mean, what does that look like if there's fat around blood vessels? Where does it manifest most strongly? So we have two types of fat in our body. We have the subcutaneous fat. And that's usually if you look down at your belly and you pinch that fat, that's our subcutaneous fat as it sits right below the surface of our skin. But the fat we should be most worried about is our visceral fat. And this is an example of perivascular adipose tissue. And that's because it, it has such close contact with our organs. So perivascular adipose tissue, as you undergo like overnutrition, it starts to accumulate and expand around your blood vessels. Because as when someone gets obese, you can see like they start to accumulate fat. And as well as accumulating that subcutaneous fat that we can see very vividly, they also accumulate that fat that surrounds their organs. Do you think perivascular adipose constricts blood vessels and raises your blood pressure? Do you think that could be contributing? Yeah, definitely. Because it's been known that perivascular adipose tissue can actually regulate vascular tone. So perivascular adipose tissue is an active organ that it's an active endocrine organ that sends all these different like cytokines and adipokines 
to actually send messages to the blood vessels that will affect how it constricts and how it dilates. I mean, physically, if you have a vessel surrounded by fat, if it starts encroaching on the vessel and literally narrows it by squeezing it, you know, radially, then maybe that would increase the blood pressure too. Yeah, definitely. But it's, I really find it interesting because there's like a fine line between when paravascular adipose tissue is healthy versus when it becomes detrimental to the blood vessel. Because it's when you're in a disease state that this adipose tissue begins to expand and then your blood vessels can't grow fast enough to accommodate that expansion, that's when it becomes detrimental to the blood vessel. But before then, it's quite accommodating and it will help it constrict and dilate and help it regulate the blood vessel. Yeah. So what's the difference between healthy and unhealthy? I'm going to, I guess I'll call it PAT, perivascular adipose tissue. Let's maybe we'll call it the acronym PAT. So it's like yeah. a, a healthy or unhealthy PAT. What's the difference? So with unhealthy perivascular adipose tissue, what usually happens is that when you overconsume something and you keep eating, the adipose tissue will expand. And two really big main things happen. The first thing that happens is that as the adipose tissue starts to accumulate all these lipids, it expands and it undergoes mechanical stress. So as it goes undergoes mechanical stress, it also becomes inflamed. But the pathway that we're really exploring is that when overnutrition occurs and angiogenesis doesn't isn't able to accommodate to it, the adipose tissue will undergo hypoxia. So as there's a lack of oxygen supplying that is supplied to the adipose tissue, it begins to die. And when it dies, then it will recruit all those immune cells and then inflammation will occur. So that's when the adipose tissue will start to release like cytokines that will then diffuse into the endothelium and start restricting the blood vessels. But in a healthy blood vessel, what happens is that as it's there, it will still release all those cytokines, but there'll be like healthy cytokines that will help regulate the blood vessel. A big adipokine is like an adipocytokine is adiponectin. And that's one of the really big key um, vasorelaxation factors that are released from perivascular adipose tissue. It helps regulate the blood vessel. So it helps to um, produce nitric oxide to send to the endothelium so that the blood vessel can relax. So does, uh, does again, I just call it Pat, does it grow around existing vasculature but then chokes it off or constricts it or redirects its motion or does it uh how does it get vascularized itself where does it not because it's an active organ so it just continues to grow and grow when we look at it so we work in mice so when you look at it because i particularly look at the aorta and when you open a mouse that has metabolic syndrome we see that so much more fat like just anatomically you can see it just accumulating so much more fat and it's just if you had a straw and then you just had bubble wrap over it just one layer and the fatter is the more layers of bubble wrap you have around it so then it's it'll be as the bubble wrap like accumulates you have more and more of like that bad stuff accumulating in the blood vessel like that that has the capacity to send all these bad cytokines to the blood vessel that will affect its function right but if you you know someone has a lot of fat does it have its own blood vessels running through it or does it just kind of work its way between the existing blood vessels to get nutrients to itself? Yeah. So it would have its own blood vessel supply as well. It would depend on. Well, is that, is that supply different? Is it smaller, you know, like more 
capillary types, you know, blood vessels and therefore less effective? Or does it also grow big fat yeah. vessels to, you know, go through itself? There will be smaller vessels, like capillaries. Okay. So, right. If an organ, the heart, liver, whatever it may be, it tends to have large and small. So there's microvasculature, but there's a lot of large vessels. But fat in general has no macrovasculature. It's all micro, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting. It's just very different and if that's the, the case. You know? sort of, yeah. Yeah. It's really different to say that mainly the bad things really occur because the microvasculature isn't able to grow as fast as the expansion of the adipose tissue. So will you get more hypoxic areas as fat, you know, accumulates more and more? Yeah. And that's one of the big things that happens is that it undergoes hypoxia and then it starts to die off because it isn't able to accommodate to the expansion of the adipose. And as it undergoes hypoxia, it then starts to recruit different immune cells like macrophages come in and then it starts recruiting all the other immune cells. And then the adipose tissue becomes pro-inflammatory. And it's like a constant vicious cycle because the immune cells are trying to come in to clean up the mess, but then it starts recruiting all these other pro-inflammatory cytokines. And as your, it just is, it becomes like a chronic inflammatory cycle, which is why obesity is often termed as like a chronic inflammatory condition. What sites on the body tend to grow thicker fat where you're going to get more hypoxic areas and which ones uh, are less susceptible to that? Usually the visceral adipose tissue, so the organs that sit really close to your organs. So a big one that's in the field at the moment, a lot of people are looking at the fat surrounding your heart and obviously the fat surrounding your blood vessels. Usually things like subcutaneous adipose tissue, so the fat that sits below the surface of your skin, for surgeries like liposuction, it only really takes your subcutaneous adipose being cardiovascular disease because all that visceral adipose tissue still sits in your body and the dangers of having it there is still there. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. I don't know if you've studied liposuction, but if they take out a lot of subcutaneous fat, does that do anything to the visceral fat? It just goes on unobstructed or does some visceral fat leave and migrate, you know, to become more subcutaneous? Like what does the body do? It stays. So from what I've read is that I don't really look into liposuction, but that was a really interesting thing that sort of clicked to me when I was reading about it. But from what I know, the visceral fat still stays there. So the liposuction fat will take that subcutaneous fat, which leaves the body, but that visceral fat will still stay, which was why it will pose the same risk, whether you have the disease or not. Well, in terms of uh, visceral fat, what's preferential? What happens first? And I'm sure for men and women, it's probably different. But, you know, what has been observed? Where does it first start to accumulate? Like the liver? 
or the heart or you know which organs are affected later on i'm not entirely sure what organs are affected first but one of the big things we think why females are more protected in metabolic syndrome and cardiovascular disease is because females ferentially accumulate subcutaneous fat so that fat that doesn't necessarily have big adverse effects whereas males will accumulate that visceral fat which is why women often have that most women have the pear-shaped bodies whereas males are shaped as apples as they mainly gain that like visceral and middle body fat so that's one of the really big things that we look at and why we think that females are more protected than males because of that. Why do you think it happens in the first place? Why is there a preferential uh, distribution of fat in that's different in men versus women? Why do you think that is? I personally think that why females have more subcutaneous fat might have to do with evolution and the childbearing capacity of females, but I'm not entirely sure. It's really interesting to look into that. Well, what about doing biopsies of, uh, I don't know, maybe you can get liposuction fat from men and women and compare it. I guess it would be pretty hard or maybe yeah, dangerous definitely... to take visceral fat. Or, you know, from autopsies, I mean, you know, men versus women, maybe there's a, a bank of fat extracted from them, you know, visceral fat, and it can be characterized. Yeah, that would be interesting, especially looking at liposuction autopsies. Because definitely subcutaneous fat isn't there because it's just there. It will definitely have a purpose. And it would be really interesting to look at human human subcutaneous adipose tissue as well, because I'm quite used to looking at mouse adipose tissue. But we're mainly looking at, at a mouse model at the moment. But it would be cool if maybe later in my PhD, I would be able to look at a human study. Make me feel like things are more applicable. Yeah, I mean, can you get access to uh, cadaver fat? from recent autopsies? Is that hard to do? Or again, um, liposuction clinics, uh, you know, they're probably throwing the fat away. I don't know if you could uh, put in a request to have some of it uh, given to a lab so it could be analyzed. Yeah, I'm sure we could. But it's just, it's not an avenue that we've even thought about, actually. So thank you for telling me. Um, But it would be something that would be interesting for us to think about. Because you're right, surely no one's keeping their subcutaneous adipose tissue after liposuction. I'm sure they've wanted to throw it out. So at least it could go to us and be of use. If you need any fat, I can donate some. I have have plenty of extra. So I'm sure there's more people like me that would love to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Um, It'd be a big resource because I don't think people are using it. You know, they're not using it for organ transplants or anything. So there's probably a ton. I mean, literally tons and tons and tons of fat that could be analyzed if it was asked for, you know. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, definitely. But I think the reason why we haven't really explored it because we're mainly focusing on that visceral adipose tissue, which of course would be pretty dangerous and hard to collect from a person. But I've always, now that I'm wondering... It would, I would probably have to collect the visceral adipose tissue from a cadaver maybe as soon as I can because, of course, if you don't have a blood supply, then the visceral adipose or any adipose, I guess, would die straight away. Yeah. Because then you don't have that vasculature, vascularizing it, yeah. Well, I would think that since you said that there are hypoxic regions in fat, I mean, 
So the cell types that make up fat, are they um, more tolerant of low oxygen conditions? I would think they would be. They wouldn't just die. You know, I know they're releasing materials to try to maybe step up the, uh, you know, the angiogenesis to them, but they probably are more tolerant to those conditions. I mean, is that, has that been explored? I believe there are studies that have looked at them in, in different cell culture conditions to see what percentage of oxygen can the adipose tissue survive in and at what point does it undergo apoptosis. But to look further into, I haven't explored that yet. And I wonder too, you know, cancer cells seem to be able to operate in lower oxygen conditions and they switch their metabolism, you know, from oxidative phosphorylation to, I guess, glycolysis. Is there any evidence that fat uses glycolysis or has a different metabolic uh, setup? Yeah, so fat itself will, it has a big role in glucose metabolism as well, as well as the factors that it releases. It can be, so adiponectin, as I mentioned before, is anti-inflammatory, insulin sensitive, and has those vasodilating properties. So it will release factors that will control all these different metabolic processes. Okay. Again, I I just think it'd be interesting to study uh, any analogs between cancer cells and fat, you know, given that, again, probably both cell types are uh, able to thrive somewhat in low oxygen conditions. So, hmm. Yeah, that definitely would be interesting to look into. I mean, has anyone looked at like the histology of fat, you know, taking a big chunk of it and, you know, looked at like single cell sequencing and seeing if it's uh, very heterogeneous, again, just like a cancer tumor would be, you know, what is, is there, are there layers of different cell types or different structures that form within fat? Yep. So with fats, we have like our brown adipose tissue and our white adipose tissue. And that white adipose tissue is that the dangerous one because so it's mononuclear whereas brown adipose tissue is multinuclear so you have so the brown adipose tissue is more thermogenic so it produces more energy and is able to break down different things whereas adipose white adipose tissue is more susceptible to that expansion as well so histologically when you look at it it's amazing to see them side by side because then you see the white adipose tissue and the nucleus is in the middle but the cell membrane is so large especially in high fat animals whereas the brown adipose tissue they're really small and they're really condensed but single cell sequencing would be so interesting and it's been something that we've been thinking about for my project so it would be really exciting to see the cell-to-cell interactions as well with the surrounding cells of adipose tissue and within the endothelium and the blood vessel itself and also the immune cells because that's what we're really interested in the interactions between the fats, the immune cells, and the blood vessel cells. So like smooth muscle and the endothelium mainly. I'm picturing a vessel surrounded by fat and, you know, nutrients are going through the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they're diffusing out of the vessel into the surrounding tissue, if they have to go through fat first, then fat mm-hmm. cells would preferentially feed on those nutrients. And would they filter out? important nutrients that now cannot get to the surrounding healthy tissue because the fat cells have gobbled it all up or, you know, filtered it out. Yeah, I definitely think that is a possibility. And I guess if the larger the perivascular adipose tissue, the harder it is for those nutrients to reach those organs because it has to go through that thick layer of adipose tissue. So then you're depriving that organ of what 
it needs as well. Have you looked for a microbiome of fat? It certainly has its own distinct microenvironment, and therefore it probably has its own microbiome, a localized one. Oh, that is very interesting. I haven't thought about that at all, actually. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, like any cell, it's uh, creating metabolites that other creatures want to eat, and those creatures are creating stuff the cell would use, and, you know, back and forth. So maybe something to look at. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Do you feel like you're you're getting close to resolving any of your hypotheses? Like, what's ahead for you in the next year or two? So one of the big things for me when I started my PhD was that that was really surprising to me, actually, was the lack of animal models for metabolic syndrome, especially diet-induced ones. Because, of course, we know that metabolic syndrome is largely due to diet. So the first two years of my PhD has really been focusing on optimizing a diet-induced model of metabolic syndrome because there's a lot of different genetic models out there, such as like the OB-OB mice, which lacks like leptin or DBD mice, which lacks the leptin receptor. But we really wanted to pursue a diet-induced model because it is much more representative of the human condition. So the first two years of my PhD was firstly to look at an already established model of metabolic syndrome. And we found it quite difficult to obtain those different comorbidities. So we found that our mice had obesity and very low type 2 diabetes. And that's only two of the four characteristics. So it was hard to characterize a model as a metabolic syndrome model. But we've like tweaked the percentages and stuff. And we found that in our model that we have and we're using at the moment, that both males and females are obese, have abnormal lipid levels. So that's been really exciting for me in the last two years and it has been probably one of the highlights. So we're hoping that potentially in the next few years that more people are able to use this model to explore like different organs or different vascular beds with with different vascular adipose tissue. But for us so far is my main hypothesis now is to really tease out that interaction between fats at a post and the book is really working. So that's where yeah. I'm hoping to head in the next year, uh, two years or so. Are you just focusing on uh, pat in the heart or in other organs? Um, in adipose tissue. In So the only adipose tissue that we're focusing on is the aorta. Oh, just, okay. Oh, really localized. So just around the yeah. aorta. Yeah. And the biggest benefit that we have when we look at the aorta is that it comprises of both brown adipose tissue and white adipose tissue. So we're able to see how it changes as the mouse develops metabolic syndrome. And it links quite well because the thoracic aorta mainly accumulates brown adipose tissue, whereas the abdominal aorta accumulates white adipose tissue. So In diseases such as abdominal abdominal aortic aneurysms, like the abdominal aorta is always much more susceptible to all these diseases before the thoracic aorta. So I think the perivascular adipose tissue that specifically surrounds the um, abdominal aorta plays a really large role in its susceptibility. What about imaging, you know, in people? I mean, I know you're not going to go in there and pull fat out near the Mm -hmm. aorta, but if you do, I don't know if you'll pick it up on ultrasound or, you know, MRI or whatever, but if uh, you can get some people to allow for imaging of their heart and they're in various stages of, you know, fat accumulation, you might maybe by the morphology of what you see around the aorta and the other vessels, you could tell something about the fat and what it's doing. 
Yeah, I think we definitely can, especially if we can figure out if a certain amount of fat is like they are more, that means they are more susceptible or have an increased likelihood of developing cardiovascular disease. But it would be really hard to do that just because there's mostly inconsistencies with maybe the measure that that we'll use because the amount of fat that a person will end up accumulating will differ between obviously males and females. It might differ between ethnicities as well. And it will also differ between like height. So we would have to really develop a, a precise measurement between like each sex and ethnicity and race and maybe height as well. So I think it's definitely something that would be interesting for us to explore as well. This PhD of mine is going to be a lot of exploring and will probably sound like it will take a long time to finish. No, there's a lot to look at, which is good. So um, you, you can, yeah, I, think- I just thought of a bunch of acronyms. There's PAT, there's WAT, and there's BAT. Yeah, so, yeah. Then there's I fat. think that's the great yeah. thing about science is that there are so many avenues for you to explore. And the more you find out about something or the more you learn, it just leads you to more and more questions that you want to find out because it's all about piecing together a puzzle that puts a bigger picture, puts a bigger picture together and really helps us understand our body a lot better. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, very good. Uh, Vivian, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So I'm mainly on Twitter. So at Vivian, V-I-V-I-A-N-V-T-R-A-N. And that's when I'm most active or on my email at vivian.tran at latrobe.edu.au. And I would love to talk more about any science in general or specifically about my project. Very good. Well, Vivian, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I really love the opportunity to share my work. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.